Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good of American Exception. Today we have a lot lined up here. First, Jefferson Morley is going to talk to us uh, about the CIA and the JFK assassination. Then Bryce and I are going to discuss the possibility of Israel's um, full-on assault on the Gaza concentration camp leading to a bigger regional conflict. Then Bryce and I are going to discuss RFK Jr.'s campaign manager, Amaryllis Fox, and the plans for ethnically cleansing Gaza. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception production. Please support American Exception on Patreon if you can. Now on with the show. Jeff Morley, it's great to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So you have been writing about this case. I uh, I don't want to date you precisely, but it's been a while because you are one of the authors in the JFK screenplay, you know, the book of the film that Oliver mm -hmm. and Zach Sklar put out. And you were writing mm -hmm. about how uh, at, at this point you're writing for the LA Times uh, and your, mm -hmm. uh, your article is The Political Rorschach Test. What Americans think about the Kennedy assassination reveals what they think about their government. Now we're coming on the 60th anniversary. What are mm -hmm. your reflections uh, on the case, the state of the case in general? And this, maybe you could say something about how, if it is a Rorschach test uh, for how Americans feel about their government, then boy, they don't really feel very good about their government in 2023. And is that going to impact the way that this anniversary unfolds? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. I'm glad you brought up that piece because it really is, the, the Kennedy assassination really is a Rorschach test, and we see that now more than ever. And what I meant by that was an enigmatic incident um, that we you know, put our interpretation into and we try to make sense of by analyzing it. And the way that we do that tells you a lot about what you think about the national security agencies, the credibility of the media, the credibility of the courts. Um, the credibility of our system in general. And so the Kennedy assassination is kind of way of measuring that. And on the 60th anniversary, we see that, you know, the feeling that the Kennedy assassination tells us something very negative about our government, that the government didn't tell the, the full story or the true story, um, is still with us. Poll taken last December found that, uh, you know, a solid plurality, almost a majority, 49% of Americans, midterm voters who were polled last uh, last November, said that they did not believe the official story and they thought, they thought that more than one person was involved in Kennedy's death. So um, a smaller amount, probably about 38%, believe the government's story. And that proportion has pretty much held true over the years. A majority not believing the story and a solid minority subscribing to the so-called lone gunman theory. So we see the issue still alive today in our politics. Robert Kennedy Jr. has made the murder of his father and his uncle, which he says were the responsibility of the CIA, and an, an issue, almost a kind of central message of his campaign. Um, uh, President Biden issued what he called a final order on JFK assassination files in June. Um, President Trump has weighed in on the JFK files on various podcasts. So, you know, it's kind of it's not a major issue in our politics, but it's a persistent issue in our politics because of its symbolic importance. And I think what you see on the 60th anniversary is, and I see this in taking 
calls from you know reporters at you know big newspapers. The fact that there are still thousands of CIA documents related to the assassination that still contain redactions has really introduced a new mode of skepticism, even among mainstream reporters. Why, why would the government feel the need to keep something secret after 60 years on what is supposedly what some people claim is an open and shut homicide case? Why should anything be classified, especially because Congress passed a law in 1992 and said that all of these records should be made public within 25 years. That was, you know, in 2017. So we're six years past the deadline set by Congress, and the CIA continues to flout the law with the acquiescence of first President Trump and now President Biden. So that is making people more skeptical. Hey, what's going on here? What's the real story? What's this secrecy about? So that's what I see coming on. This is a live issue in our politics because of its symbolic importance. And it's an issue in, you know, that's out there and has to be dealt with. Right. It is. I mean, it's a momentous issue. It is a Rorschach test. I mean, you, I know this from looking at people uh, who've done things related to the case. I mean, I, I always come back to Peter Dell Scott working on the mm -hmm. Pentagon Papers with Zinn and Chomsky and how they both were telling Peter that, like, he shouldn't write that essay about you know, an insam 273, which he didn't even have the text of at the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He shouldn't write that because his argument was that it mattered who was president and that's bad politics. And so he just, he shouldn't have written it. But like, to me, that is the perfect encapsulation of how ideology uh, impacts the way people perceive these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Noam Chomsky, it, it's remarkable that, you know, our, 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 our major left-wing intellectual and critique of the American empire totally buys the government's story about how the president was shot to death in broad daylight and nobody was brought to the crime, you know? And yeah, I think it's just an example of how Chomsky's ideology just overrules his sheer ability to assess the facts. And, you know, like Peter Dale Scott showed, you know, U.S. policy in Vietnam changed radically very soon after Kennedy's assassination. And that's what NSAM 273, I think, the, showed. The day after the funeral. Yeah, shows very clearly. Kennedy, in a meeting on October 10th, 1963, Kennedy dragged his feet, once again resisted calls for um, withdrawal and kept the option of, I mean, re resisted the Pentagon's calls for more troops and kept the option on the table for withdrawal starting in 1965. That stance that Kennedy took of holding the line against demands for escalation changed as soon as he was violently removed from office. So that has to be significant in how you understand the assassination. I mean, in any country, in any other country, we would say that was highly relevant. You know, so we can't just say in our country, well, it doesn't matter because like Noam Chomsky says, it doesn't matter who's president. That's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it, it's most obvious with Vietnam, but really in Indonesia, in Africa, Congo, Ghana, Brazil, Dominican Republic, it was a, uh, if, if not a 180, something close to a 180 change, at least it's a 180 as far as the spectrum of what you could ever expect from the U.S. foreign policy yeah. establishment. I mean, it was, yeah. it's, it's quite, there's enough history now that we know, we know more and more of what happened and things, it takes decades for 
the uh, complete story, which we still don't have, but to to get closer to a complete story for something like Indonesia, nineteen sixty five, and then you look at like, oh, the world's biggest gold mine was in play, and <laughs> it ended up in the hands of an American corporation, uh, and it, it thanks largely to policies of, that were reversed uh, by mm -hmm. Johnson. I mean, the motives are it's that's the main issue, or or, or Israel, the the changes towards Israel. I mean, Kennedy mm -hmm. was the only guy. It's amazing now that he was against them getting nuclear weapons, and he really was pu pushing them to come up with a resolution for the Palestinian crisis more than any other president. And uh, you know, all and, of these changes and, across the board, and 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 pushing for on-site inspections of the Israeli nuclear facility, which U.S. intelligence sources, even by 1963, were already reporting was not a civilian nuclear facility, but was in fact being used to develop nuclear weapons. CIA had received a report on that from a physicist who had visited the Demona plant in January 1961, right when Kennedy took office. So it was a live issue and Kennedy was taking a hard line against the Israelis um, uh, on the issue of the Palestinian Arabs and on the issue of, of, of nuclear weapons. Both of those policies changed after Kennedy was no longer in office. Yes, quite dramatically. So he went from uh, putting pressure on Ben Gurion to basically the U.S. president, the next president Johnson, ignoring a blatant attack on a U.S. vessel. Uh, uh, it was yeah. during the in the Six Day War. It's really something. Um, I'm going to let Bryce in because he's he's joined us now. So, okay. hello, Bryce. How are you hey, guys Bryce? doing? Good, good. Uh, it's good to meet you, Jeff. Hi, uh, Bryce. I've been your work for uh, quite a while and uh, been learning about the Kennedy assassination. Your name's come up and you've been an excellent, excellent resource. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here. We just got started. Yeah. Now, now Jeff, we we had talked about we were talking about uh, Israel and the nuclear issue. And you have a good write up on that in um, in the, your book on Angleton. Um, what was it called? The Ghost? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. OK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's behind you there. Uh, yeah. I'll put I'll try to put links to these. But um, he he was a, a figure there, and this has always been an open question as to who, you know, what was there. He was a person that pe off, people often finger for having some involvement with the JFK assassination, especially his uh, the, the, the Office of Security that he was working closely with and, uh, yeah. you know, the counterintelligence office, the mole hunt and everything else. And then there's also his connection to Israel. Uh, and, you know, people have wondered, do you have any reason to suspect that on an operational level, the Angleton Israel nexus would have had any involvement in the assassination or is that just you know, all I mean, speculation people, for us? People say that. Um, and you know, I mean, in the world of intelligence, I sort of take the attitude, anything's possible, but I am very reluctant to make assumptions or to speculate. And I don't see any personality that links Oswald to Israeli intelligence or, you know, I, I, it's very inferential. So I don't think that, um, you know, I think the president was killed by enemies. I think those enemies were in his own government. And I think they were motivated by his policies, his foreign policy, especially in Vietnam and Cuba. So, you know, was Israel part of that? I don't see any evidence of it. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I don't I don't see any I definitely don't see any evidence for them being the prime movers and sponsors behind it. I can see them being part of a coalition of people that would have been like, yeah, we got to get rid of this guy. And well, certainly, uh, I mean, let me let me take it back to Angleton, because 
Angleton does is deeply involved and implicated in the case. You know, it's his office that opens the first file on Oswald in November 1959. And you mentioned the Office of Security. They they open this file in a rather duplicitous way. They don't open a normal file on a, what's up called a personality file or a 201 file, um, which is a standard nomenclature for a CIA file about a person of interest. And the rule typically in the CIA at that time was a three or five document rule. Once you had assembled or collected three or five pieces of paper about a given individual, then you opened a file. That was enough. So if you had newspaper clippings or whatever, and right away after Oswald defected, the CIA had you know more than five documents about him. They had cables from the State Department in Moscow. They had some reports from the FBI. Um, Office of Naval Intelligence weighed in. So they quickly had more than five documents, but they didn't open a personality file, at least not right away. They opened a file that was held in the Office of Security, which is the Office of Security is the CIA's internal police force. They're in charge of keeping the CIA facilities secure. So what Angleton would do is he ran operations through the Office of Security because that information was not shared with the whole agency as a whole. It was only a year later that they open up a 201 file and Oswald's file then goes into what was called the central file registry, which was, you know, a place where anybody in the CIA with the appropriate clearance could go in and look at a file. So they hold what what the effect of the Office of Security file was, was to hold information about Oswald very closely. And there's strong evidence, which I talk about in the book, that this was part of Angleton's mole hunt that what he was doing was he wanted to know if if there was a mole in the CIA, and he thought that there was, that that person would be interested in a defector to the Soviet Union like Oswald. So if that person wanted to find out more about Oswald from inside the CIA, they would request his file. Now, if the file is in the central file registry, anybody in the whole CIA can access it, or you know, pretty much anybody. It's kind of a public place within the clandestine service. With the Office of Security file, somebody would have to go to Angleton personally and say, I want this file. So they would have to identify themselves. And so that looks like a kind of fishing expedition to see if anybody would bite on the Oswald file inside the CIA. This is how Angleton conducted his mole hunt you know, investigations, was this kind of internal detective work. And so that seems to be the reason why Oswald's file was held in an unusual way. The, but the other thing that we've learned since Oliver Stone's movie, and this is really the thing that's really been criminally undercovered. And I just, I harp on it all the time now because it's so important. You know, Dick Helms, deputy director of the CIA, Angleton's boss, you know, the guy who presided over that, that file, which grew over the next four years to include 42 documents. You know, Angle, Helms told the Warren Commission under oath, the CIA had only minimal information. That's an exact quote. and. CIA Director John McCone used the exact same phrase. We had only minimal information about Oswald before Kennedy was assassinated. That's totally false because we now have that whole file. We have the 42 documents. They knew everything about Oswald. They monitored him everywhere he went in those four years. They had his current address pretty much as soon as he moved to a new place, they knew where he was. They were reading his mail to his mother. My favorite story that came out just recently is they intercepted a letter from Oswald's mother um, to Lee when he was living in Russia. And she says, um, I got your letter and um, 
you know, why don't you write more often? You know, because the kind of stuff any mother would say in a letter, why don't you write more often? How's your new wife? And then she says, I don't think that I can get a copy of 1984 for you because I can't find one. Mrs. Oswald was living in rural Texas at the time. But she said, a friend of mine has one out, so I'll send it to you. So the CIA knew in 1961 that Lee Harvey Oswald was interested in reading George Orwell. Now, this doesn't fit very well with the depiction of Oswald as a you know, fanatical, you know, bloodthirsty Marxist. In fact, Orwell was banned in the Soviet Union at that time. So leave aside the irony that Oswald's interest in a dystopian novel about a surveillance society is in fact picked up by an illegal surveillance operation. This, this is what the CIA was interested in. And it wasn't, so they weren't looking at Oswald as like, oh, we could use him for this or that. And they weren't looking at him like, oh, is he a KGB spy? They wanted to know the very detail, the smallest details of his life. And the reason you collect information like that is to use in covert operations so that you know what motivates somebody, you know the details of their life, and you can use that to get what you want out of them. So when you look at the declassified Oswald file, those 42 documents and what they knew about the guy before Kennedy was killed, it's extraordinary. They knew a whole, whole lot, and then they immediately lied about it to the investigators. So that fact alone, you know, false government statements in a homicide case cannot be considered irrelevant evidence ever, right? And yet, and yet the, the typical way of understanding the Kennedy assassination, because people do believe the official story, they do believe the CIA's false statements, you know, is that none of that's relevant and that this guy shot the president and, you know, a, a little man killed a big man, get over it. And that's kind of what people have been hearing for 60 years. And, you know, just uh, most people don't buy it. It's just not credible, you know. <laughs> and as more time goes on and the secrecy continues, fewer and fewer people buy it. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, the, the, he was shot from the front and there's other aspects of it besides Oswald's background. I mean, there's so much evidence of, of bullets and other things. And, and Bryce, I'll, I'll let you ask the next question. But before, while we're on this subject of the mole hunt, and while uh -huh. Jeff is here, who's one of the only people who can answer or, or who may be able to answer this or may have some input here, I want to pose this question sure. about the Office of Security, because there's very few yeah. people that have given, you know, uh, gone on a deep dive into that. And when when there was under the, you know, James McCord worked in the in that yeah. office as a, yeah. you know, an important person. And during the time of Nixon, you know, he they get James Schlesinger. And Nixon are kind of appalled, realizing the CIA's connections to the Watergate burglars. And you've written about right. this. They set about trying to get dirt on the CIA. And Nixon's already tried to do that about the Kennedy assassination specifically. The, pro the thing is, the family jewels do not contain uh, a lot of the things that are very explosive that we would be that we have that we know happened under the CIA. Things like related to drug traffic uh, and other things. I mean, they have some tidbits here and there, but there's many things like like the Frank Olson murder and, and a lot of other scandalous things, sexual blackmail and everything. Those things seem to be quarantined in a sense in the office of security and treated with such a level of secrecy that whatever Schlesinger didn't seem to be able to get access to those things. Do you, th I mean, doesn't that add to this, the idea that the office of security really was kind of a CIA within the CIA, sort of a black hole where they, for security reasons could actually just even destroy, destroy or secret away documents and make yeah. it so that we're never going to get them. And who knows even yeah. if, who still has them? You know, um, Angleton's operation 
really was a CIA within the CIA and, and whose records had a separate record keeping system. And, you know, and, and McCord did have um, uh, a, a very sensitive job. Um, he was sent to Berlin in 1962, so he was sort of on the front lines of the Cold War. McCord helped develop a plan. There were three CIA guys in a jail in prison, and it was McCord who was developing the escape plan where they would break in and spring these guys. And he had even gone so far as to obtain the floor plans to the prison. So, you know, McCord was known as a break-in guy within, within the agency. And, 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 and Helms was aware of McCord's activities at that time. So McCord and Helms went way back. Yeah, and, and he was, you know, McCord was a very trusted guy by, um, by Helms. When, when McCord got arrested, one of the first calls he made was to his wife. And his, his wife told him to call his office and to take down a signed autographed picture that he had from Dick Helms in his office. That's how close, that's how close McCord was to help. And, and then the other McCord also told his wife to start burning his papers. And so she and another guy from the Office of Security were throwing all this stuff into the fireplace in McCord's house in Rockville, Maryland. And the, the thing like the chimney, you know, got stuck and the house filled with smoke and it was a big catastrophe. But, you know, that's how that's how much stuff they were burning was, you know, uh, that night after, you know, the first night, couple of nights after McCord was arrested. So, you know, they clearly felt they had something to hide. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I was going to ask is, uh, well, you know, this is still on the, uh, the the Kennedy assassination itself. And, you know, one of the big striking things about the case is that uh, not only were was Kennedy killed by his enemies, as you say, uh, but the big story is that the they were allowed to get away with it, not only by the elements of the government, but also by the media, which, you know, largely didn't cover and largely, uh, you know, pushed the long gunman narrative and uh, ignored any upcoming evidence. Uh, but, uh, oh, okay, continue. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, that's true. I, 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 you know, to the extent it's hard to put ourselves back in the position of people in 1963. I mean, in 1963, you, you got to remember, you know, we, we had very little social knowledge of what the CIA was or did. At that time, it was like, those are the secret guys. They're the good guys. They're going to do what they want, and we're not going to ask questions. And that was, you know, pretty much a consensual view in American politics from, you know, from left to right, with only with the exception of, of the far left, really, you know, starting to critique the agency. That starts to change in the 60s with the Bay of Pigs um, uh, in particular, but also with, you know, the CIA's war. You know, people knew that the CIA was the one waging the war on Fidel Castro, um, you know, that the CIA had overthrown the ramparts, the, the ramparts expose in 67. Mm. Yeah. So 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 attitudes change a lot in the 19 in the 1960s. Um, but certainly, yeah, the, the mainstream media totally accepts the, you know, the statements of the CIA at face value as if, you know, they couldn't, they had to be true. And what's happened is, you know, those media figures who bought those, you know, those stories back in the 1960s, like Dan Rather and Ben Bradley, you know, they're stuck with that story now and they can't back off it without 
without really damaging their own credibility. I mean, I think you enhance your credibility by admitting you make a mistake, but that's not the way big wheels in the media think, right? Yeah, they, and Dan Rather, especially with him, uh, you know, uh, being shown the Zapruder film and then saying that, oh, well, you know, Kennedy moved violently forward. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, maybe he knew that, like, no one would ever see that film for the next, uh, you know, whatever decade, but... Uh, I, yeah. But he would cloud himself to anyone who had seen the film. So, yeah. But well, you know, the other things that that we've learned since since Oliver Stone's movie, since the 1990s, since the passage of the JFK Records Act. So you have the complete Oswald file, which shows that the story that the Lord, the Warren Commission was fed a cover story, and the cover story was the lone gunman, and that covered up the fact that the CIA was very interested in this guy for four years. So that's one big thing. Then, you know, we've had. We knew about COINTELPRO in the 1970s, but it wasn't until the declassification of a lot of material in the JFK collection where we understood how pervasive that was, how deeply involved the CIA was. So, for example, James McCord started filing, spying on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in 1961. Um, and the CIA renews its interest in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in 1963 at the very moment that Lee Harvey Oswald starts acting in the name of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And that sort of agent provocateur behavior where you have somebody act in the name of your target agency to discredit it, mm -hmm. that was a standard COINTELPRO technique to create- even, You could go further and look at, so people have suggested that the whole Fair Play for Cuba Committee may itself have been a CIA yeah. thing, <laughs> no. not, not, not because they were sympathetic to Cuba, but the idea is that, well, if there's going to be an organization that's going to be pro-Cuban and you put it out there, then you can see who's interested in it. It's a way to gather information on public sentiment and so on, and then to, or to create people like Oswald. Well, um, I, I don't think that's true because the, the, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was created by two guys from CBS News, Robert Tabor and Richard Gibson. Tabor was a TV correspondent who'd spent time with Castro in, um, uh, in, in the Sierra Maestra before the revolution. Gibson was a, a, a writer for CBS News who had lived in France and was friends with Richard Wright. Um, they created the, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee as a way of defending Castro from this increasingly aggressive and negative coverage in the press. They were really trying to change press coverage, uh, you know, even more than that was the main thing they were trying to do. That, that was their name, Fair Play for Cuba Committee. But, you know, the, the CIA immediately set out to infiltrate and Richard Gibson did become a CIA agent very soon after. He was recruited and paid and was on the CIA payroll for the next 15 years, most most significant African-American CIA spy in this century, I think. Um, and and they also put a, a spy. The FBI had a spy in the in the New York office. So they had the Fair Play for Cuba committee well penetrated before Oswald came along. Yeah. And uh, what's his McCord worked on that, some of those operations, which were all illegal. We probably don't know the half of the COINTELPRO style operations. I mean, Operation Chaos seems to have been that way. If you read the Chaos book on Manson yeah. and you look and you think about things like Jim Jones and the Symbionese Liberation Army, a lot of those things <laughs> just rhyme in particular ways. I don't have any master theory on, on to, that ties it all together, but just yeah. there are aspects of it that seem to be not, they seem too perfect and there's too many characters and that, that, seem to be intelligence connected 
Well, I mean, that's what the what the the, the records released since Oliver Stone's movie since 1993. That's what they really show is they give us the the texture and the details of CIA operations and these kind of false flag operations. And you know, we can understand now much better how they work and how pervasive they were. You know, this was a standard tool of these agencies that they used against domestic dissonance, you know, all as a matter of course. COINTELPRO is is usually thought of as a FBI program. You know, I think most people, if you said COINTELPRO, they say, yeah, J. Edgar Hoover, FBI. That's actually not technically the case. COINTELPRO means counterintelligence program. And the counterintelligence techniques that COINTELPRO used came from CIA counterintelligence. These were the tactics that the CIA used against their enemies overseas. And the FBI used those tactics at home. So, you know, when when they wanted to run a, an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, because there was a some foreign interest in the group, the CIA took the lead, not the FBI. So COINTELPRO was really a joint CIA-FBI program. And, you know, it was very um, it was very pervasive and targeting enemies of Cuba policy in particular. Now we're uh, we need to wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you this before we go. You said that you had a anecdote about a, 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 a some, someone from the JFK case and some recent development uh, that you wanted to share here and talk about. Uh, so maybe if you have a way to tie some of these newer developments in here, that would be a cool thing to do on the eve of the 60th. Um, I'm going to post a story. I'm actually working on it, finishing it right now, about the surveillance of Oswald in Mexico City. And a living witness has is now talking about that. And so it's another story that shows, I mean, first of all, there's new things to be learned, significant new things, and that there are living people who know significant new things, but also about the pervasiveness of the surveillance of Oswald, especially as we get closer to November 22nd, 1963. So I'm going to, I'm going to drop that story next week. And, you know, maybe when you see that, we can talk about that. I've got one other story that came out earlier this year that I think is really important. And that is that the CIA itself did not believe the lone gunman theory. And I wrote about this back in January with a document that surfaced in a year ago in December, had never been released before. And it showed that the CIA station in Miami, right after the assassination, investigated JFK's murder. And they did not investigate Oswald and they did not investigate communists. They investigated Kennedy's enemies in South Florida. And this agent who came forward said, you know, here are the questions that I was told to ask my agents. And everybody in the Miami station was asked to ask these questions. And they were very specific. You know, who had the money, the guns, who would be interested in organizing, orchestrating the ambush, you know, of the president. And they only focused on anti-Castro exiles. So the CIA itself did not investigate Oswald the leftist after Kennedy was killed at a time when the FBI and the White House were saying Oswald alone did it. They investigated that Oswald was a pawn of right-wing anti-Castro Cubans. That was the first suspicion of the CIA. That's very important because that's how they understood what happened in Dallas. The other thing that's important about the story is they've never released the results of the investigation. Hmm. So did they confirm the lone gunman theory and find no evidence that anybody besides Oswald was involved? If they did, they've never gone public with it. 
And you'd think if they did, they would go public with it and say, look, we couldn't find any evidence. They've never released the results of the investigation. So I think that that means they did not want to share what they found, um, which was involvement of anti-Castro exiles. So that's the one big story I've, I've reported on JFK this year, and I'm going to have another one next week. Excellent. Well, we are going to wrap it up now, but I uh, I want to have you come back on sometime pretty yeah, soon to talk yeah. about this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure. I'm still bursting with questions. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. So we'll do the Let's full do hour again. next time. Yeah. Thank you okay. so much, Jeff. And this was this was wonderful. So uh, thank you for this and for all your work. Bryce Green, good to be having you here for this uh, next segment. How you doing? Glad to be here, getting these plants in my living room set up. <laughs> you have the plants, and you have the books behind you. Uh, this is how I know you're serious, because you're you've you've got it. You framed the scene for us, and uh, I need to do a little bit better. But I I, I don't have the. I want a big bookshelf. I want it to be like the Library of Alexandria behind me. Yeah, and you're I one can't. hanging plant away from uh, being deadly serious. I know. I need a hanging plant. I do. Okay. <laughs> Let me uh, say, first off, we are, uh, I'd like to be able to say like, well, we don't have anything to talk about because everything's all peaceful and cool in the world. And so there's nothing to do except talk about uh, some NFL football or something like that. But uh, sadly, there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world. And um, we just had Jeff talking with us about our guy, James Angleton. And uh I want to talk about a few other things that uh, are, are very important right now. And of course, this gets into Israel-Palestine. So a recent article at The Cradle from Pepe Escobar. Pepe Escobar always has, I mean, I don't always, I, sometimes I don't agree with Pepe on this or that, but that's kind of beside the point. He's usually looking at big questions out there. And he's talking about potentially, you know, a trap in Palestine that the U.S. may be stumbling into. Um, and the headline here, the only country that could possibly distract the West from the from Ukraine is Israel. But the U.S. and its allies are walking into an existential trap if they think a West Asian victory will be more easily won than a European one. Uh, Bryce, have you had the sense that uh, how do you factor in Ukraine, what's happening in Ukraine with what's happening in Palestine? I mean, is this is the U.S. hoping in a sense to have uh, do you think how do you think this could impact it in any real substantial way or how do you see these things as being related yeah well uh, there's a big grand strategy calculus that's going on when the when you look at the u.s and ukraine the u.s and israel and one of those is weapons uh like where are the weapons going how much uh how much is going to be able to be used in American stockpiles rather than just sent to Ukraine or Israel. Um, and part of the reason that the Pentagon people started becoming you know, more and more against the Ukraine war as a long war was that the amount of weapons in American stockpiles was decreasing to the point where they might not be able to fight a serious war if one happens uh, for a long period of time. And we and when the Israel situation broke out, we already saw weapons from Ukraine be, or weapons on their way to Ukraine being diverted to Israel, uh, which you know seems to indicate that there's not really a lot of productive capacity uh, to sustain all these different conflicts all around the world and also keep the U.S. weapon supply up to snuff. So uh, those there, you know, Zelensky was worried, and he used the same term that 
Escobar did, distraction. Like he was worried that Israel would distract from Ukraine. And if that's the case, and it does seem to be the case, it looks like the American empire is stretched a little thin and that this won't be something easy to just handle quickly in Israel. And as we're seeing in Ukraine, you know, it's not getting a lot of coverage, but uh, Russia's uh, mounting a uh, more or less pretty serious offensive uh, when you look at places like uh, Afdivka and, uh, well, even around Bakhmut, it seems, uh, they're they're moving again. So it doesn't look like that conflict is going to be, uh, you know, a walk in the park. <laughs> and the, the situation in Israel, if Lebanon and Iran and others get involved, it's also not going to be a walk in the park. So it does seem like a, a, tra- a bit of a trap, like for the for the West, who can't or for the or for the world if it ends up escalating to nuclear war, which I really hope doesn't happen. Because l- let's get into some of these things that Pepe talks about here. This is pretty heavy stuff. Um, I, I wanted to point out a few things. So Hamas visited Moscow. I think that's uh, worth noting. Met with impotent Israel fury, according to Escobar, um, and the. What what Pepe is pointing to, which is I think still remains to be seen in terms of whether it will play out this way, but that Hamas, Iran, and and Russia be negotiating at the same table potentially here. Okay, uh, what will come of that? We'll we'll see. But he says slowly but surely a pattern may be discerned. Could the Arab world be on the verge of significantly uniting to avert, avenge their own century of humiliation, much as the Chinese did after uh, World War II with Mao and Deng Xiaoping? I think this is something that the West has feared for a long time, and it's why they feared Nasser so much. They hated Nasser, especially those people in the, um, you know, they're what you would think of as like the, the globalists or uh, your sort of American imperialist Uberales people. Uh, you know, Kennedy, uh, JFK was the only president really who was that friendly to Nasser. But there were still Arabists in the CIA who liked, who wanted to support some secular regimes. Uh, and when it came down to it under Eisenhower, the U.S. intervened on the side of Nasser against Israel and against uh, France and Britain and the Suez crisis. That's really remarkable. But the U.S. has tilted so far on the other side. I mean, who knows if the U.S. was even involved in killing Nasser in 1970 or if you know other intelligence agencies would have been involved. But they, after, after Kennedy, they tilted far away. And for the Chinese, so this is the prospect of this. Could they finally, the Arab world, the Muslim world, uh, could they finally end the, what you would call a century of humiliation? Like the Chinese, through the opium wars and the Taiping uprising, uh, which was really a, um, a consequence of the opium wars, and then the Boxer Protocol, they had to pay like a trillion dollars, and then they had to fight the, the Japanese, you know, lost like 20 million people doing that. I mean, it was Western imperialism, and including that from Japan, because Japan basically just copied Western imperialism, that that made the Chinese people suffer so much. It's unimaginable for people uh, in the U.S. to even comprehend. Uh, and but they found a way out of it. And the Middle East is looking to do the same, perhaps. So this is a, a really momentous thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And that that centrally of humiliation is a great metaphor, because, uh, again, the only way it can be ended is by their own self-reliance, their own, you know, independence. And China, you know, as much as they're making peace in the Middle East, you know, they're brokering deals between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, they're perfectly positioned to help uh, the Arab world get themselves out of this. And for that to happen, the uh, American hegemony needs to be, you know, seriously challenged. 
Right. And that is, I think, the real risk here is that by making common cause with Israel, there some some lunatics really do want this war to, to spread to the wider region because they have a they're fanatically committed to the idea of U.S. you know dominance in perpetuity. And if that what's happened, the way things are going now, it's going to make that impossible. And so why not just start a big war? Um, yeah, which is pretty scary. Like, yeah, wars can like create opportunities for your policy, especially when you're desperate and you have no other options. But there's no guarantee that this is going to turn out the way that the U.S. likes. Just like, just like the Ukraine situation, you had a lot of hawks, a lot of uh, fanatics thinking that it was going to destroy Russia, um, and it didn't. And now Russia's more or less in a far better position than it was before, in a in a lot of respects. Maybe not with respect to Europe and their relations there, and America and their relations there. But with the rest of the third world, I mean, uh, Russia looks a lot better to them than they did two, three years ago. Yeah, I mean, in the the as far as war goes and the way that it can restructure history, look at World War II, because the U.S. empire was essentially built on a, a foundation of 50 million Chinese and Soviet corpses. I mean, that's how many people died defeating fascism, or so they thought they defeated fascism, but really... Where Japan and and Italy and uh, Germany all just get folded into this new U.S. system of imperialism again, sticking it to the Chinese and the Soviets. So, who, you know, who 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 fought and died to win World War II, and then who were the real winners of World mm -hmm. War II? Like who won the 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 world afterwards? And that was the U.S. And that's why it's so remarkable what's happening now with Russia and China finally, uh, I think, reversing some of the you know, a sort of another century of, of, of struggle, uh, you could say, uh, that uh, almost, uh, almost it's getting up to be 80 years since the end of World War II. Yeah, it's, uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where, like, we were talking about Ukraine as a major historical inflection point, but, you know, this, the, the two combined shocks of a, a regional war in the Middle East, potentially, and the, and the, you know, crisis in Eastern Europe, I mean, that's just going to reshape the whole chessboard. And you have figures in the U.S. who understand that the situation, like, as it was going, was untenable. Like, the like the, the third world wasn't going to, you know, live under the, the Western thumb forever. But they don't seem to understand what to do about it. And they don't seem to understand any, any way out of this while maintaining their privilege and their power and their superiority. And so they turn violent. And so they encourage violence. Uh, who knows yeah this is this is i mean uh it, this is spelled out by people like al mccoy and people like chalmers johnson in his book nemesis and then um the mccoy book is uh like in the shadow of the american century i think and that's a that's a, one everyone should check out even though he's more on the liberal side than me uh, mccoy is he he lays out you know pretty soberly what happens to empires now here's this this is what's uh, another part that's significant about what's going on now with china and the, and this conflict in the middle east uh, beijing with its diplomacy hinting at this this idea that the arabs might you know run uh, the run arabia you know or that the people in the middle east might run the middle east um yeah for example looking at the saudi and iran rapprochement which you just mentioned that's a big that's a big deal um now when it comes to the the neocons and their obsession with looking to attack Iran, uh, he's saying that the neocons ignore how Iran has the ability to retaliate, okay? And that that retaliation would target each and every U.S. base in Iraq and Syria, 
uh, with the Persian Gulf being up in the air, how that would be handled. But of course, they can shut that down. So this is saying that Iran is not powerless. They actually could do some damage to uh, U.S. interests. And that is that, you know, that's a big question mark as to where it would go. This is where he gets into the Strait of Hormuz, Persian, entry to the Persian Gulf. 20% um, of the world's oil goes through there. Okay, 18% of the world's liquefied natural gas. If uh, Iran can block this very easily, if you've seen this, it's an, it's an extremely tight choke point and the Saudis and Iran are right there and they're pretty, they have a good working relationship now. And I think that they understand the future lies to the East, not with the West. And they're trying to break it out of this, uh, you know, the status quo slowly, but surely. Um, the real deal of, of stopping oil flowing out of the Persian Gulf, as Pepe describes it here, and other people have talked about this, it would bring down potentially the Wall Street engineered 6.8 trillion derivative structure. Uh, and Pepe points to analysts at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan uh, and independent analysts who have said, yes, this is quite plausible. Uh, in a scenario of total war, Russia, Iran, and the Arab world uh, would do what it takes to bring down the financial system. And they could do this according to Escobar. So this is something quite sobering, I think. And I'm, you, you, I mean, th these are arcane financial, uh, it, it's an arcane financial infrastructure that we have set up that's underlying all of this you know, international trade. It's, it's insane and hardly anyone really totally understands it. I don't have a total grasp on it. I don't think anybody really can because they intentionally make it opaque. But something could this something like this could be could make 08 look like uh, you know uh, uh, look like a, a, a cakewalk or something. I mean, this is going to be it, it could be a disaster. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The way that the the structural interdependence of these various countries works is that you know they do have this ability to crash each other's economy, e even if they. Uh, you know they don't have the ability to do anything like geopolitically or like in the un or make their opinions heard on on the little things on the big things you know they have what's effectively uh, uh if not a veto power something approaching it uh towards u.s policy and that's how it's been for uh, places like saudi arabia you know who uh have the ability to raise gas prices or at least uh or lower them yeah put pressures to lower them or put pressures to raise them uh, depending on how they feel the domestic situation in the United States is going. And, you know, it, we like to talk about these countries exclusively as American proxies uh, and like uh, as American vassal states. Uh, but I think that does uh, misconstrue the situation a little bit. Because especially now. Yeah, especially now. These countries have a, a lot of leverage over American domestic politics and, uh, and American like activities on the world stage. And when you have America in a, such a weak position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, the rest of the third world, uh, that increases the, the bargaining power of our quote-unquote vassals. It seems that the only people who have increased their vassal state into, to the U.S. is like Europe, like, like France and Germany. Like they seem to have gone more along the lines of uh, we're going to serve the U.S. Um, we're going to let uh, you know, whoever blow up our pipelines and then just take it. Uh, but Saudi Arabia and uh, these other places are saying that, well, you know, we have enough wealth, power and independent initiative to uh, you, you make overtures to the East, which yeah. West can't really do anything. About. Like when they made that uh, peace deal, uh, when China broke the peace deal with Iran and Saudi Arabia, 
uh, I think it was either Blinken or William Burns uh, who just flew to Saudi Arabia. Like, oh, we were completely blindsided. This, like, how could you do this to us? Like, why would you do? Like, because they didn't have the power. They didn't even know that this was happening. And they, when they had to beg them to 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 stop, and they didn't even succeed in that. So, the power centers are shifting. I mean, and the potential. I think the U.S. pipe dream was to have normalized relationship uh, between. Israel and Saudi Arabia and Hamas has, but with this attack, um, really put the kibosh on that. I don't think that that's coming back. I don't think that's ever going to happen, to be honest, uh, uh, yeah. at this point. So I, I think that's completely off the table now. I mean, yeah. Uh, unless this, even if this ends today, and it's not going to, like so much damage has been done in terms of public opinion and the, the calculus that these, these Gulf states have to undergo uh that it's probably not going to be politically viable for them to pursue normalization with israel but there right. was a time when you know we, we we saw headlines and people writing about and and even like friends from the region they would talk about how arab states had abandoned the palestinians uh but to the extent that these are dictatorships like they still have to be responsive to the public sentiment of their people otherwise running a dictatorship gets a hell of a lot harder so yeah. there have to be some there is, you know, a democratic impulse, so to speak, in that uh, in that they have to respond to the if their publics are really in support of Palestine, they cannot govern their publics while they are actively normalizing with Israel. That's just a simple political fact. And they could have at one point, I think, said, hey, having normalized relationships means we could have more leverage in the peace process or something. I mean, at some point you might have been able to argue that I don't think that it, I don't think the Arab street as they call it, is buying that anymore. And that's, uh, that's probably a, a sign that they've wised up. Not that they ever likely did. I don't. I think that the people in the Middle East are more skeptical of their leaders than uh, the, the, probably than is, than is true in the West. Yeah, uh, certainly. <laughs> now, this part is, I think, very uh, full of implication here. This is a quote that uh, Pepe puts in the article, old school deep state higher up, now in business in Central Europe. Uh, the Islamic nations have the economic advantage. They can blow up the international financial system by cutting off the oil. They do not have to fire a single shot. Iran and Saudi Arabia are allying together. The 08 crisis took $29 trillion to solve this, uh, to solve, but this one, should it happen, could not be solved even with $100 trillion of fiat instruments. Hmm. So this would be, I, I, if I could try to summarize and paraphrase what I think that the person is getting at is that the actual material, the financial chicanery that they put in place, no matter how much you would come up with something artificial in terms of creating credit out of thin air, the actual loss on the markets of the, of the energy from the Persian Gulf would not be something that you could offset with fictitious financial chicanery. Like it is, a, it's a, it's a deeper material problem that these, you know, alchemists, these financial alchemists are not going to be able to fix. Right. And it is just like we were saying, like, they don't have to fire a shot. Like, they, they have structural power that isn't based in, like, you know, military and uh, having clout in these international bodies, uh, having the ability to bomb people. No, it's just economics. If they, if they want to stop selling oil to these groups and then sell oil to you know, other people in the East, well, there's nothing that we can do to stop them short of invading them. And, you know, since we're already stretched thin, that's not going to happen. 
and uh, that gives them an insane amount of power. And it's, we'll, we'll see how this ends up playing out. Now, another thing that he points out with this, which I hope doesn't necessarily come to pass, but here's what Pepe was saying, which this may be, this is already apparently out, outdated. So you know, take this with a grain of salt. As it stands, uh, Washington has refused the green light for the Israeli ground invasion of Gaza. Uh, the main reason is that there's an immediate U.S. priority to buy some time to expand the war to Syria, um, accused of being the key transit point for Iranian weapons to Hezbollah. Okay. Well, that's troubling that they would talk about this, but let's also add this last part here. Chinese Navy uh, is shielding Iran from a distance, according to Pepe, but more forceful statement from Premier uh, Li Chiang, something unusually blunt and rare in Chinese diplomacy, which I will second that. This is more... Uh, over the top than, well, let's just say candid than what you normally expect. Uh, China will continue to firmly support Iran in safeguarding its national sovereignty, territorial integrity, and national dignity, and will strongly oppose any external forces interfering in Iran's eternal, internal affairs. So that sounds close to a statement of, uh, you know, it hints at an alliance, really, like that uh, between them. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, it's it's just again this growing bricks solidarity, this growing bricks integration. Uh, I don't know when the last time the the U.S. like you know stuck uh, like stole one of the Iranian tankers. I think it was earlier this year, but you know they regularly engage in. I mean, there's there's piracy basically. They're stealing ships, stealing oil. Um, you know, there was talk of using. Uh, uh, using stolen Iranian oil to pay victims of 9-11. Uh, they, they talked about that for a little bit, just like they did with the Afghan stuff, uh, just because they're all crazy. Uh, but the fact that other countries... Uh, but the U.S. has been able to do that because no other country is standing and saying, if you do that, we will sanction you. Or if you do that, we will uh, you know, do something in response to that. But now you have a global power, or at least a major regional power. You know, China doesn't have bases in you know Latin America, for example. But you know, a major regional power ex expanding that they're going to have a new uh, uh, rules-based order. Basically, there are rules that China is setting. There are lines that China can draw that the U.S. can't cross, uh, and that's yeah, pretty I major think China's mostly they're mostly adhering to international law to be. I mean, their yeah. idea of a rules-based international order, the rules would be international law. It's actually international law. Like the, is, the rules that's to clarify. The <laughs> yeah, well, the rules, the rules-based order that the U.S. has is like using that international law framework, but, you know, abusing it and basically saying that, well, we can extend our influence to say who can do what, who can not do what. Now, China is using their influence to do something similar, except that the rules that they're enforcing are actually rules and they make sense and they're in the interest of, you know, protecting sovereignty and fairness. Uh, yeah, the, the rules-based international order is pretty much compatible with the Fuhrer principle, except just taken to the international realm. Right. And, you know, uh, like, what, what the, old, uh, the, old, the old line is that uh, the rules-based order is that the, you, the Americans rule and order people around. Uh, and that seems to be what's going on uh, yeah. all the time. But the, the fact that the Chinese are like, well, you know, we actually do respect sovereignty. Uh, you know, that's a pretty significant development. And yeah. I think I heard Pepe talking on um, 
maybe it was a uh, bit Norton's geopolitical economic report somewhere. Uh, he was talking with some like Michael Hutchin and Rene yeah. Kassai. Yeah. Yeah. And he was talking about how the BRICS group is talking about making entirely new international organizations to replace the ones that have been so captured and destroyed by the rest. Like, imagine if there's an Eastern version of the International Criminal, Criminal Court or well, a just BRICS uh, version of the ICC or BRICS version. Global. Of... Let's just call it a global version because it's really not even Eastern. It's the it's the whole world except for the Atlanticist, you know. Yeah. It's the, it's the whole world except for like the U.S., uh, Europe, Japan, and Australia, and South Korea. Like it, that that's basically the only exceptions to the world. But yeah. a, a more serious international arrangements, like I think that could be very helpful, but it's hard to see how the US will react to that. So <laughs> I mean, this this is what the whole world is waiting to see. Uh, I like this. Pepe Escobar closes his cradle article with uh, a quote from Malcolm X, which I, I almost always approve of because Malcolm X usually would say things that were righteous uh, or even if they were not righteous, they were they were righteous in a, in a way. I'll try to explain that later as we talk more about Malcolm X this uh, in the in the coming year, because we're going to do more on him based on uh, the episodes from the Four Die Trying series that are going to deal with Malcolm X. So for now, I just want to talk about this quote here, which is great. Uh, Malcolm X predicting in 1964, uh, he's, Malcolm X said, some rice eaters ran him. I, I, I think that he just, that him is the white man, we can just say. Some rice eaters ran him out of Korea. Yes, they ran him out of Korea. Rice eaters with nothing but gym shoes and a rifle and a bowl of rice took him in his tanks and napalm and all that other action he's supposed to have and ran him across the Yalu. Why? Because the day that he can win on the ground has passed. Well, he said that in 64 and he would be proven correct. Uh, with the Vietnam War would start the next year, and uh, he was correct there. And the U.S. lost in Iraq. They've been asked to leave uh, uh, by the parliament, and they just have a few bases. But besides that, they lost. They've lost in Syria, except for like the fact that they're just sticking around with like some territory that they're standing on. They lost in Afghanistan. Uh, they're losing in Ukraine, and there they're not even really fighting. They're just letting somebody else do the dying for them. But I mean, this is. How how prophetic does Malcolm X seem uh, uh, with these words right now? Yeah, uh, no, it's good. I mean, because <laughs> we always talk about the degradation of American military power and how they can only rule through uh, either fear or overwhelming uh, like air power. Uh, same with Israel. Uh, when you actually send human beings onto the ground, well, versus human beings who you're trying to invade and take their homes, uh, it doesn't it doesn't work out so well. That's why the U.S. they couldn't capture a territory in Afghanistan without having the Taliban, like you know, recapture it a few months later, uh, throughout the almost the entirety of that whole war. And then we're, now we're seeing the same thing in Israel, where there's about to, you know, they've already started uh, doing a ground incursion, but everyone in Israel will tell you that, well, you know, our soldiers are basically, you know, twenty-year-old guys who they, their primary experience with military is, uh, you know, beating up uh, defenseless children. Uh, who are throwing rocks at them or gunning uh, gunning sn sniping like elderly people from 200 meters away or blowing up a home excuse me from like a drone or a tank they don't have any experience actually fighting people with something to fight for who can fight back and uh, you know they're they're worried about losing this uh, this ground game and the reason that the last incursions into Israel were so destructive uh, not just the air power, but when they sent the soldiers onto the ground in order to protect the, you know, the, 
the home front in order to keep spirits high. They had to minimize the, the, the casualties uh, that the IDF suffered. And so in order to do that, they just blew up everything in their way. They didn't even get the opportunity to be shot at because uh, if that came to happen, they'd probably lose. And so this is just imperial arrogance encapsulated into a nice little quote here. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I, it remains to be seen how much resistance Gaza could put up and how far Israel would go in terms of just flattening everything block by block, because that seems to be like one possibility that they would have. So I do think if they try to go into Lebanon, uh, that it would be a different story. They would run into Hezbollah and uh, Hezbollah is Hezbollah seems a good bit tougher than those IDF guys. I don't think that if uh, in a fair fight, I don't think that uh, Israel, of course, Israel doesn't want a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> no military wants a fair fight that's the whole purpose of having a military but uh i don't i think that they're gonna have they can go in and bully uh and massacre you know uh innocent people who have no military in uh in gaza but i don't if they go out of there i think they may they may find it a bit tougher going just like with the last time that they went into uh lebanon yeah it didn't go so well yeah so that's where we are now here i want to get into something very interesting on twitter which is amaryllis fox this is uh the kennedy rfk's campaign manager and the woman who is married to robert kennedy the third and uh she is uh her she comes from a very wealthy family uh her father was really wealthy i think made money in real estate uh, and her stepfather is worth like 10 billion dollars and her stepfather's business partner is the also a billionaire and he's the main guy who bought the Washington football team and got rid of its racist nickname. Um, so, uh, and Amaryllis interviewed right out of high school. She interviewed that, uh, the, the Burmese CIA darling, uh, you know, that was a real coup. So she's, then she went into the CIA and, uh, you know, was in the clandestine service there. Now she took to Twitter recently. She's RFK's campaign manager now. Dennis Kucinich stepped down, and he's been writing uh, something. He wrote something very interesting on his own Substack that we should probably talk about next time, uh, dealing with, the, you know, the need for peace. But here, Fox says some interesting things on Twitter that are partly in keeping with Kennedy's foreign policy approach, but then at some points, you know, departing from the traditional JFK, you know, foreign policy and such. But we'll get to that. So if you look at this part, this is part of one of her longer tweets. Um, and she's talking about prospects for a regional war, saying that Iran and Hezbollah don't have a reason to start one. Uh, she makes the argument that Iran is weakened by protests and Lebanon's economy is, you know, in trouble. Um, and then also points out that Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, and China were working about, you know, thinking about declaring a commitment to de-escalation and such. Now, here she points out the Iran-Iraq war killed over a million people. Uh, provoking, uh, uh, okay, that's Shia versus Sunni in the 1980s, but provoking a war in which these two are aligned, the Sunni and the Shia in the Middle East, and the U.S. would be pitting itself against OPEC and, and the BRICS and these nuclear arsenals, okay, saying that that's madness. Okay, so that's a good thing. She's sort of saying, let's not have a Sounds nuclear cool. war over this. At least that seems sensible. Uh, why would we even entertain the idea of doing something so crazy? Uh, same reason that Rumsfeld wanted to go after Saddam after 9-11, you know, sweep everything up, things related and not. Now she says $8 trillion, 900,000 dead humans later, we haven't learned our lesson. Uh, leveraging tragedy to start unrelated wars is blood-soaked profiteering, corporate capture of our government, that's what it comes from. Okay, that's not, there's some reasonable things she says there. 
Now here she gets into Israel, and this is where it's more of a, a problem, I think. Two extremes emerge, neither is feasible or morally acceptable. One, tell innocent Americans and Israelis that they must leave the Al-Qaeda or Hamas perpetrators free to kill thousands or more because they're the government's past actions. Two, level the civilian centers under which the perpetrators hide without making a Herculean effort to evacuate the civilians inside. Both of these, are, both of these extremes are intolerable forms of collective punishment. So what to do? Okay, I'll just read, I'll quote, quote her here. Evacuate civilians for a start. Two million people is a vast undertaking, but opening the Rafa crossing could allow safe haven, albeit in the brutally hospital, inhospitable Sinai desert, and only with some form of bought tolerance from al-Sisi of Egypt. So she's saying... So what do you make of her framing of this as they're pointing out that there's two sort of ideal types on the extreme end of like, okay, saying that you should uh, have a ceasefire. I guess for here she's saying a ceasefire. Call for a ceasefire is, is an extreme. Yeah. Is extreme. And it, she doesn't say that though. She writes it in a weird way. She doesn't say call for a ceasefire. Like, cause that would, I think that would undermine her argument. She wants yeah. to make it stream. She wants to make it seem infeasible and morally unacceptable so she doesn't say ceasefire she says this she says let them kill let them kill thousands more like that that's what her equivalent of a ceasefire is but this you know this frame is common among like you know israel supporters they'll say well you know if we don't if we don't blow them all up well then they'll just come and attack us later Uh, but it, it of course ignores the actual context of the attacks why any attack against israel ever happens in the history of you know this conflict it happens because there are people who are being oppressed and uh, there's only one way to stop the violence that comes from a people who are being oppressed is to stop oppressing the people. It's ending the occupation. It's uh, putting together a settlement in which, uh, uh, you know, the rights of Palestinians are actually acknowledged. Uh, but, you know, that's completely out of the table. Uh, she seems to adhere to the racist Israeli view that if we ever give them freedom, they'll just kill us which means it's not even off the table. It's not even an extreme uh, because uh, it's, it's not even on the table. They talk about a ceasefire, but that's just doing nothing. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, addressing the underlying problems. And so this, the way she's framing it is a way of avoiding talking about what's actually going on, why it actually happened. Uh, like we talk about Hamas and the attack on Israel as some sort of uniquely horrible and, uh, you know, a catalyzing catastrophic event to use a you know PNAC language if we see that as you know unique then it justifies an extreme response but if we see this as you know a, a military operation that killed civilians as part of a larger trend of civilians being killed on either side largely on the Palestinian side well then it, you can have a more sane conversation about what's going on than talks of uh, you know ceasefire talks of reigniting the peace process or talks of actually fingering the main perpetrator in all this israel that becomes a lot more readily uh, uh, you know it becomes a lot easier to do and what they're what she's doing and what a lot of uh, pro-israel people are doing are saying that well you know this hamas is an unspeakably evil group and you can either let them go crazy and kill people or you can uh, yourself go crazy and kill them before they kill you and that's just you know that's just a historical it's false uh, as we, you know, we talked about this with Ben Howard on, uh, you know, American Exception, 
but Hamas has repeatedly, repeatedly been willing to recognize Israel. They've repeatedly been willing to moderate themselves. They've repeatedly been willing to adhere to ceasefires when Israel adheres to them. And they've repeatedly uh, readjusted their language. Like they issued a new charter in 2017 that eliminated a lot of the, you know, the, the more incendiary language from their old one in the 80s. Uh, so it, they're not some sort of lunatic, fanatical terrorist organization uh, that you can't negotiate with. They're a governing body of, a, of an oppressed people. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to talk about that if you're an American, if you're in the American discourse. You can just say that they're, they're terrorists and you have to blow them up. Uh, and they're willing to ethnically cleanse 2.2 million people to do it. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, it's a very bizarre way that she, she frames this. And even, it, she doesn't say ceasefire anyway. Like, she, you'd have to really be paying attention to realize that that's what she's saying there. Instead of saying a ceasefire, she ha she frames it this way. I mean, I, I feel like she really gives the game away here by, it, it, by trying to obscure what she's doing. She reveals it if you're paying any attention. Uh, so I, I think that this is very troublesome. And the... Also, even the, even the idea, kill thousands more because of their government's past actions, as though it's like some grievance in the past. But the right. source of the, it's not the past, it's the present. And it's the fact that this unacceptable, and the unacceptable criminal violations that the Palestinians have experienced are, are ongoing, you know, that they're going on at the moment, you know, and that they are expected to continue into the future. That's really the issue this isn't like oh tit for tat and revenge just a cycle of violence like the the status quo is totally unacceptable and it was built on actions that were are very hard if not impossible to justify uh from this point at this point in time so anyway this is this is a a problem now she also is the person let's see if i have another um okay I'll come back to this. This is a complex situation requiring creativity and compassion. It's clear that a ceasefire without apprehending the perpetrators of an attack that killed 1,400 innocent people without rescuing 200 plus hostages that remain is not viable. Asking Israelis to accept that thousands more will be killed by the same perpetrators in future attacks is as much collective punishment as bombing Gaza without civilian evacuation. Wait, what? Yeah. It's... No, uh, okay, having people accept that they might be attacked in the future is not on the same level, level as actual, killing everyone yeah. <laughs> uh, the option i explored here while quite possibly not the best one is better than either of those oh, okay so no, i standard standard just like fascist nonsense like even even using the like you know kills 1400 innocent people uh rescuing 200 hostage it ignores the fact that well a a sizable chunk of those 1400 were soldiers and so you can't classify them as innocent a sizable, uh, an unknown number of those people were killed by Israelis in the crossfire as they attempted to, uh, you know, kill all the people, uh, uh, hostages and attackers. And it also ignores the fact that these hostages, I mean, 200 plus hostages pales in comparison to the number of hostages that uh, Israel took on that very day, October 7th. There are over 4,000 Gazan workers who aren't charged with any crime but that are were kidnapped by Israel and are held without charges. And that's just in addition to the extreme number of prisoners that Israel always has. So this is all just, you know, it's, it's just your standard nonsense from the standard Israel people. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot about Amaryllis Fox, um, but I, I was told, or after the after the business with Roger Waters happened and RFK kind of did a 180 and said, like, I don't support Roger Waters because he says he's terrible things about Israel. Uh, I retracted my tweet or whatever it was. You know, it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good thing. You know, it's all the worse. It seems all the worse now uh, as the Palestinians are catching so much hell. But... What someone someone told me who uh, had been working around the campaign and and uh, for different organizations around Kennedy uh, that w was that she was the person responsible for all the Israel stuff, and uh, that seems to be confirmed by Dennis's Dennis Kucinich's uh, departure as the campaign manager, and then with this series of tweets, uh, I, it seems that she is the person there. Uh, who is responsible for this now a lot of people online who are critical of kennedy but more friendly to some of kennedy's analysis about like you know how the cia killed his parents and stuff let's say sort of conspiratorially minded people on social media they think fox is just outright uh you know cia operative uh cia slash Mossad operative or something like that or deep state operative of some kind i don't really go for the full maximalist uh, cons conspiratorial interpretation right away. I mean, well, she is a CIA operative. Well, she was a CIA officer, and the question is, is she acting in some sort of intelligence capacity now? And I would say you can't prove that she's acting in an intelligence capacity now. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're a little, the people are harsh. Her critics are a bit harsh in the sort of conspiratorially minded community. They think that she's a sort of trustafarian tracy flick type character i don't know that she's really that bad i think maybe she's got a, some positions here that she needs to be educated upon or she could revise or maybe in you know her, maybe she and bobby will come up with something uh that will allow them to seize the initiative here because i think that the public if the public is the majority on the side of a ceasefire and she's saying that the uh, american public the ceasefire option is is not feasible and morally unacceptable like I don't understand. Is she just thinking that the American public is is bloodthirsty or something like that? I mean, I don't get it. It's very weird. Yeah. Now well, the other, a, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, you know, it, it's hard. It, it's impossible to make any judgment about what capacity she still has a relationship with, like you know, those clandestine intelligence services. But there's, you know, you know this. Like there's massive precedent for uh, intelligence agencies uh, messing around in domestic presidential campaigns. I mean, Bill Casey was uh, Reagan's campaign manager. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Fox is on the level of Bill Casey. Uh, but, you know, there's one thing that looking at uh, the intelligence community and uh, the deep political history has taught me is that, well, there's no reason to give these people the benefit of the doubt. If, uh, you know, there's the most important uh, moment in the imperial history and you have a campaign uh, that has a uh, that is attempting to play a central role in shaping the future of the empire. Uh, seeing people with shady connections that are part of that campaign uh, understandably raises flags among uh, you know the people who study this sort of thing, the parapolitical types and uh, the, the Twitterati and all that stuff. But uh, you know, it, it is it impossible? To, it's impossible to tell just based on that alone. So. Now this there's to to add to the sort of worrisome, you know, qualities of uh, of this line uh, of, of reasoning that she put out on Twitter. This came out a couple of days after uh, her post, her posting on this. It was uh, from Dan Cohen, 
uh, uncaptured media Substack. Uh, so I, I think people should check this out. It's someone in the, uh, it, within the Israeli government, uh, I believe, who was not named for this because he was, you know, gave the information, you know, uh, basically as a whistleblower of sorts, leaks this paper, and it's calling for uh, ethnic cleansing of Gaza. The paper calls for intensive action to harness the U.S. and other countries in support of this goal. So this is basically, if you read it, uh, they explain it in detail, and they have the whole paper, and it's translated. I think it's originally in Hebrew or something, right? But I think you can get translations of it. Uh, but, you know, look it up online if you want to find it. Uh, so the paper examines three possible options for how they could handle this situation. Option A, the population remaining in Gaza and the importation of Palestinian authority rule, okay? Meaning that you would allow them to be more, have more, you know, self, self-governance and so on. And they... Uh, the population remaining in Gaza and the upbringing of local Arab rule. So maybe that would be some version of uh, autonomous Gaza. Um, they could they go into more details on these other ones. The first two are really not that central because they're not. They're sort of poo-pooed by the authors. Option C is the key. Evacuation of the civilian population from Gaza to Sinai. This is just driving the Palestinians uh, in, from Gaza into the Sinai Desert. Uh, from an in-depth look at the options, the following insights can be obtained. Option C, the option that would yield positive and long-term strategic results for Israel and is a feasible option. Uh, the paper admits that option C, at first look, seems to be complicated from an uh, international legitimacy perspective, but then argues it's actually better than the alternatives because it wouldn't require the Israeli military to maintain a presence among the civilian population and would reduce the number of civilian casualties. Therefore, it's the best option from the perspective of international legitimacy. So they're saying, well, if we force them out into the desert, we don't have to slaughter them, which makes us look kind of bad. Forcing them into the desert, not quite so bad. Okay. Uh, furthermore, the paper claims that massive migration from fighting zones and population movement is a natural and necessary result in light of dangers of staying on the battlefield. In essence, the claim is that transferring the Gaza population out of the Strip can be sold to the international community as a natural migration of refugees fleeing out of war zones rather than the deliberate ethnic cleansing operation that they propose. Uh, while option C is presented in terms of its advantages, options A and B are described in terms of their disadvantages. So this is what they're going for, the, the people that are calling for this, uh, that, are, and that have written this paper. Which to me is alarming in that Fox was calling for exactly this and really trying to package it in kind of propagandistic ways that obscure what she was really calling for. So I don't know. What's your take on this this document? I mean, it's pretty it's pretty damning, right? It's pretty damning, and you know, it's uh, I, I only saw the, the the Hebrew versions of it, um, you know, and uh, people translating them in real time. Uh, but this was picked up, I think, this morning or maybe yesterday by uh, the Israeli paper Haaretz, and they're, they're discussing it in commentary. You know, they they might say that oh well, this doesn't have a lot of support within the uh, you know the, the whole of government. But, you know, it shows what the mindset of these people are and what they want to do to Gaza. And, you know, forcible transfer, ethnic cleansing has been one of their goals for a long time. You know, they'll say it. They say it all the time. One Israeli politician calls for a Nakba 2.0. The Nakba, of course, being the original expulsion of Palestinians off their land in 1948, which created what we know as the refugee crisis today. Uh, you know, others have called for, you know, turning Gaza into, uh, you know, a parking lot and flattening it. Uh, they always talk they always about say how, like mow the lawn, mow the lawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll always talk about how they just want Gaza to sink into the sea, and kicking out Palestinians of 
you know, from that land, pushing them into Egypt, pushing them into the desert, uh, solves their problem. Uh, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, now we can turn Gaza into, like, a resort for, you know, more of the Americans moving over here. Uh, you know, the Betselem, they had a report that said that this is a regime of what's called Jewish supremacy between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. And if they, if Israel acts on this policy, and they are acting on it right now, uh, that's just more damning evidence that they want a, uh, a ethnically pure uh, land. Like, that's, that's, a, that's what they want. And this is a, one way to achieve that over years and years and years. Even if this didn't happen, remember that the Gaza, uh, they're, they're slowly being poisoned anyway. Uh, you know, the 95% of the water isn't drinkable. They, they're bombed periodically. Uh, Israel bombs sewage treatment plants, making sure that diseases keep spreading. They deny medical attention to those people. I mean, you've seen genuine Holocaust historians compare this to, like, genocide. This is genocide. Uh, and that, they're saying it's a textbook case. And this document just, you know, puts the nail in the coffin uh, for that. And, you know, the, these comparisons to, uh, you know, the worst excesses of, you know, like the the Americans forcing the natives to, you know, get out of their land because they uh, they want this land. The, the Nazis trying to force the Jewry out of Europe uh, and eventually settling on the solution that they're just going to kill them all. I mean, it seems like we are coming up on a moment similar to that. And... I, I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss for what to do. And I, I see no reason to give anyone the benefit of the doubt on on uh, in the American side or the Israeli side, because even if they say, that, oh, well, we don't necessarily want to do all that, they're supporting it. Uh, they're supporting all that by their actions, uh, by their lack of condemnation, by the money that they're going to give, by the money that they're uh, that they've always given. Uh, it's that, that's what they're going for. Yeah, it's a strange moment here i think that for a lot of people it's not going to go back to the way it was before in terms of people being afraid to criticize israel i think that they may have turned a corner here uh, more than they realize although it remains to be seen uh, how this will play out i think the taboos about criticizing israel are are vanishing and uh you know this it, it's a fascist it is a fascist project and it's it's part of the u the it, it's dovetails with the u.s project we should have killed fascism at the end of world war ii but we didn't the, the people that henry wallace said you know during world war ii he wrote that op-ed in the new york times i believe like what is fascism uh, and he explains that there's a lot of fascists in the united states they're just people who value uh, profit above all else and would will lie and manipulate anything to keep the you know current arrangements going so they can get rich off of everybody else and that is the heart of fascism it's you know despotism in a, in a in a nominally democratic you know industrialized society but with top-down despotism right or, or not even let's say a capitalist society if you go with a full nazi route then you don't have any democracy anymore you have the fear principle the u.s took the idea that they could intervene with violence and kill whoever but they were going to not say they were doing that but they recruited all the people to do that all the nazis they could all the japanese imperialists all the all of the italian fascists and put them into networks of you know murderers and drug dealers and saboteurs propagandists and we kept fascism alive and that's israel and israel that so the project of you know zionism and the project of the u.s r ruling the world there were people on on the that were 
part that wanted to that liked part of the idea of Israel, you know, that wanted a, land, a safe haven for Jewish people in the Holy Land that didn't want this to become a fascist project. And there were people who wanted U.S. leadership in the world to be done in a sort of internationalist uh, way that was equitable. Uh, and they were all swept aside. And these these by very powerful, rich actors uh, and the these two imperial projects have had to run their course. And it seems like that's what they're doing. And now we're getting to we're getting down to it for Israel, Palestine. I think like the jury is in as to whether this is a project that can be done in a way that is not, you know, fascist and horrific. And apparently it cannot unless something really drastic changes. And that's somebody needs somebody in power or some group of people in power in the world need to uh, hopefully intervene or, or somehow uh, call for diplomacy in some way or another that will diffuse this because it's an easily solvable problem if there's just the will to do it and the, and the, the willingness to back away from uh, illegitimate projects that by now are, are, are clearly exposed as being uh, impossible without massive amounts of, of criminal violence. No, I, I agree. I mean, like, uh, we, we it is easily solvable from an American perspective, right? Like, it, it's hard to solve over there. And like, I don't know what to do about the insane number of fanatic Israelis who, you know, are, uh, you know, as part of government-backed pogroms against Palestinians. Who knows what they're going to do if the prospect of them getting their greater Israel uh, becomes remote. Uh, but from the American side, it's very easy. Like, we can... We have the ability to impose a lot of order on the world. And we were talking earlier about how some states have the ability to have like a, a veto uh, over American policy through like the, their, their structural place within the global economy. Well, Israel has a, the only veto they have is political. Uh, the only thing that Israel can do if America doesn't uh, go along with it is put pressure on their domestic politics. Uh, but, you know, that can only go so far if, it becomes more of a liability for them uh, to support Israel. If it becomes more of a, uh, uh, you know, if it becomes more trouble than it's worth to take uh, APEC money or to, uh, you know, consort with these kinds of people, well, then you're going to start to see a change in, in, in the American policy. And there's nothing that Israel can do about that to stop it. So they're going to have to accommodate in some way. Now, who knows? If they're, they're pretty fanatical over there. The government is very far right you know it's it's kind of unimaginable here i mean 80 percent of israelis said that they should not take into account civilian casualties when it comes to israel's bombing of gaza right now 80 percent that they shouldn't even consider them uh, yeah. that's the that's the society we're dealing with over here uh but you know who knows if they if they lose the support of big brother i mean they have a nuclear arsenal and who's to say that they're going to behave rationally about it so it's a pretty dangerous situation all around, but something must be done. Uh, it, it has to be done. I, I, I don't know where else to put it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this should be, <laughs> this is what we're trying. We're hoping that Kennedy will take this and run with it. It should be the a key part of his uh, idea for a, a, a future uh, for world peace. It's It would be not everybody, the bigger players, the U.S., um, the, the Arab world, Russia, China, they have an interest in uh, stabilizing this situation and coming up with a solution for the, the Holy Land, either either one state where everybody has equal rights uh, or a two-state solution, but really one that would result in a, a whole lot of uh, 
is Israeli settlements being reversed and uh, you know turned over to Palestinian control. Mm-hmm. If you were going to go that route, which you which people could you could do, it would just take you would have to evict some settlers. There'd probably be some violence if because some of those settlers are such nuts they would stay in the West Bank. Uh, but you know this is it's a solvable problem if if the U.S. just decides that it, it needs to be solved. Uh, I mean, I guess Israel could potentially threaten to nuke other people, but they can't. They don't want to have a nuclear war with the whole world. That that would not uh, be winning for them. So it's I. You just want where's the where's the you, leadership? If they're if they're rational, that would be the uh, that would be the the calculus. But I don't. I I personally think that more than other societies in the world, they're highly ideologically driven. Uh, because you know the the economy of Israel, it isn't necessarily based on, you know, the, the the firm capitalist logic that a lot of other states are based on. It's uh, largely subsidized by outside donors and uh, you know the United States government. And so, the internal logics that drive like our society are different than the internal logics that drive theirs. But there's a lot of overlap. Like we have the crazy Christian right, but I mean. That's not the whole reason for their country existing. Even Bush did not come on TV and say things as crazy as Netanyahu talking about the, the you know, biblical. Yeah, I mean, it's that that aspect of it does really alarm me because you know the it, it, the, the Zionist you know Israel element pillar of the American establishment, the American deep state, um, is different than the other ones in that it's not just business for them. Yeah, that's what that's what kind it's of scares just, me. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, people like like Dulles, people like Alan Dulles in that mold, mold and Brzezinski, they're total psychopaths uh, who would be happy to kill as many people as it took. But they're but ultimately it was, you know, it was connected to real world goals that if they're not feasible, you would abandon because you're ultimately needing to, like, make sure that you know, you're doing what's best for business. Yeah, I think in, with Israel. And some of the, you know, hardline Zionists, that's an ideology that is not, it's not the cold, hard realism of like Alan Dulles. It's something even crazier. And uh, that, that's, what, that's what makes it, that's what makes it scary. Yeah, fully agree. All right. Well, we, we went on for a bit, but I think that's good because this is all important stuff. So uh, Bryce Green, thank you so much for uh, talking to, uh, with us again. Yeah, yeah. Glad to be back on. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception production. Special thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Casey Moore for the graphics. To get first access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Subscribers get access not only to Devil's Chess Club, but to the rest of the American Exception podcast. Many episodes, over 150 now, dealing with the deep, dark politics of U.S. empire. After that, you can find episodes on Rockfin Premium and then on Rumble and the American Exception channel on YouTube. And we uh, now, like I said, have a a channel on Rumble too that you should check out. Okay, this whole business in Palestine is really grim. And I want to read here the last uh, couple paragraphs from the Cohen article, which I'll link to in the show notes, uh, which I think are important. The efforts to depopulate the Gaza Strip and transfer its population to Egypt began shortly after Hamas came to power after Israel's 2005 disengagement and evacuation of Israeli settlements and military bases from the enclave. As early as 2007, 
Washington began to pressure Egypt to accept the resettlement of the Gaza population in the Sinai Desert. With massive demonstrations rocking Western cities, shocking images of the human toll turning public opinion against Israel and in favor of the Palestinian struggle, and a plucky armed resistance group awaiting Israeli military incursions, it appears that the government authors of Israel's vicious plans have miscalculated and Plan C is doomed to fail. I think that they are not going to be able to achieve that, which uh, it does remain to be seen if that means they're going to go forward with just wiping out Gaza, uh, you know, flattening it, or, or what exactly. This whole thing is so serious uh, and potentially catastrophic. I think that it's no coincidence that it has happened when it has. Uh, the two things are intertwined, the U.S. Global Dominance Project and the Zionist Project. Uh, interestingly, James Angleton was the, had the CIA's desk with Israel uh, back when he was running things. Uh, both of them seem to finally, at long last, have painted themselves into a corner, the U.S. empire and the whole Israel project. But the question is for us and the world, are either of them constitutionally capable of taking the L without unleashing maximum carnage to try and avoid the inevitable? Uh, that may be what we're seeing here. The U.S. has bungled all its imperial ventures to establish the new American century. I think that some in the U.S. establishment are balking at going any, even further here, but will they be enough? Israel seems to be basically the only avenue for U.S. empire hardliners to find a pretext for launching a war they think might possibly save them. Uh, we're in this position because our rulers decided to play this game in the first place, thinking that they were exceptional thinking that unlike everyone else, they could never lose on the devil's chessboard.